Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, all right? And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we come to you because you came to us first. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see what your spirit will illuminate as you guard. Guard us from deception. Guide us into truth, into wholeness as you long for the deepest joy, the truest self, the most honoring of existence that is always for the benefit of those seated around this room and for the common good of our city, we pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. All right, well, in two, or 1091 AD till about 10, or actually from, from about, what is it, 1091 <laughs> to 1291, so these 200 years, there were actually a series of religious wars that plagued the Middle East. A series of religious wars that plagued the Middle East, infamously known as the Crusades, right? The Catholic Church, with great political prowess and great financial ballast, led the charge led the charge in seeking to recapture some of the lands that had been lost by Muslim expansion and also seeking to reclaim the Holy Land. And the atrocities and the carnage that were incurred by European armies that were supposedly conquering in the name of Jesus have put a dark spot on the name of Christ and have left this history of pain on the witness of the church ever since. And as we come to our text this morning, we come to a resounding theme that actually resonates with Jocelyn Meyer's collection that surround us, this cutting through the darkness, this conquering. And so I ask a question this morning, what if Christians, what if Jesus is calling us to actually conquer, but in a very different way? And I want you to hear me out. Now, if you're joining us for the first time or you've 
stepped back in after being gone for a minute. We're walking through the first three chapters of the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, where Jesus shows up on the Lord's Day, the resurrected Jesus shows up on the Lord's Day to the Apostle John, and he has words, seven messages for seven historical churches, words of encouragement, evaluation, and equipping. And while these seven letters are written to seven specific churches, in a particular point in time, we also see that they are for us today as we seek to be a church for the end of the world. Now, interestingly enough, a theme that comes across all seven of these letters is that Jesus makes promises to a particular kind of people. In each of the seven letters, Jesus says something to the ones who conquer, to the one who conquers. And then he makes a series of promises in each of these letters to the one who conquers. You see this in chapter 2, verse 7. You see it in chapter 2, verse 10, or 11, rather. Then you see it in chapter 2, verse 17, chapter 2, verse 26, chapter 3, verse 5, chapter 3 in our passage today, verse 12, and then chapter 3, verse 21. So over and over and over again, the one who conquers, and then Jesus makes a series of promises. What is this conquering about? Now, in the midst of of all the complexity and seeking to understand the book of Revelation and as people dive into all different types of metaphors and imagery, New Testament scholar Richard Bauckham says that if we can understand this one word, then we can understand and unlock the whole of the message of the book of Revelation, and it's the word conquer. In Greek, it's nikao. Just for fun, let's say it together. Nikao. Let's try it again. You're almost there. Nikao. Oh, that was so good. You're Greek scholars. Excellent. Now, nikao has this basic meaning of overcoming with force and strength, okay? This is why one particular sports brand took it up as its name, right? Nike. Just do it. Just conquer. Just overcome. Just wear our clothes, right? Like, that's (laughs) the idea. But when you come to the book of Revelation, and really these seven letters, the message of Jesus is abundantly clear. Jesus... He wants, he invites his church to conquer where we are. He looks at the gates of hell, and then he looks at you and me, and he says, charge. Now, before you storm out of here thinking, okay, Gabe's incessantly lost his mind. I know he's done it before. Now it's another chance today. I think the big question we need to ask ourselves, of course, is what does conquering mean according to Jesus? If you go to the Crusades, there is a clear interpretation of this passage, and I think we can all agree that that led to a history of catastrophe. But what does Jesus mean when he calls us to conquer? What does it look like for you and for me to overcome evil while simultaneously not becoming the evil we're seeking to overcome? That's why I think this little letter to the church in Philadelphia is a really great guide if we have the ears to hear. And as we walk through this this morning, we're going to find an extraordinary surprise, a brilliant battle stance, and the secret on how you and I engage this conquering endeavor, okay? So let's take a look together. If you haven't already, would you open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, and we're going to begin in verse 8, where Jesus addresses the church in Philadelphia. Jesus says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. 
I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I know that you have but little power. The church in Philadelphia, it's weak, it's fragile, it's small compared to the other institutions, the religious frameworks that are happening there in Philadelphia. And yet what we find here is an irony that is across the totality of the pages of Scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation and is brilliantly on display in a microcosm in these seven letters in these first three chapters of the book of Revelation. Here's the irony. When you look at these seven churches, the two churches that from the outside looking in look like they have the greatest reputation, are the strongest, seem to be the most powerful, Sardis and Laodicea, which we will see in the next two weeks, they actually received the greatest rebuke from Jesus. The two churches that appear to be the weakest, Smyrna, which is called poor, and Philadelphia here, that's described as having little power, received no rebuke from Jesus. The strongest churches actually are the weakest at carrying out the mission, ironically enough. And those that appear to be the weakest apparently are the strongest in carrying out the mission. How is this possible? What's going on here? Well, the irony that we come to see is a deep understanding of the definition of conquer. And this first surprise, you see the definition of conquer in Merriam-Webster's dictionary, interestingly enough, is to gain particulars of something like the, some, something or another. You can gain place, you can gain a particular thing, you can gain people by force of arms. To gain something, to acquire something by the force of arms. But when it comes to Jesus, when he invites you and I to conquer, the irony is, is that according to Jesus, here's the big surprise, weakness is always an opportunity, not a liability. When Jesus goes about his conquering efforts, weakness is always an opportunity, not a liability. How is this possible? Okay, there's something really important going on in this passage, and it comes to understanding what weakness does to us. You see, when we're weak, those areas of false security that we once held so dear feel like they're crumbling. And so we begin to have a hunger or at least a greater attentiveness to something more than this world can offer. We go reaching for something else because everything that this world provides feels like it's beyond reach. Weakness, when it's rightly directed, suddenly finds ourselves at the feet of God saying, you are everything even though I feel like I have nothing. And when you're weak, if you don't have God, you really do feel like you have nothing. It puts you in a position to finally be fully dependent upon God. And if he doesn't come through, then you're through. Weakness has the capacity to put us at the feet and the longing for something more than this world offers us. And as we long and as we pursue, we come to an interesting situation where Jesus he starts talking about opening and shutting doors, right? Isn't this fascinating? He's like, what is going on here? He's opening, he's shutting doors. It makes me think of when I'm like riding in the van with my kids. <laughs> and it's like I'm looking back in the rearview mirror. Israel, don't open that door. We're in an intersection. You know, I open the doors, I shut the doors. Capiche? 
capiche? You know, it's like, okay, good, because you're going to die if you don't. But what's really happening here? What kind of access is Jesus pointing to? Those who feel like they have no power, feel like they have no place, feel like they can't carry out the mission the way Jesus has called them to. What is this door and what kind of access are we granted? And it comes to understanding what Jesus is saying. He's actually quoting an Old Testament passage. He's quoting the Old Testament prophet Isaiah chapter 22. Isaiah is recording this historical moment where King Hezekiah He's replacing his secretary of state. And just like in any job, when one person takes the job of another, then that old person has to give them all of the keys that belong to them, right? So it's like, here's the key to the back door. Here's the password key to the email. Like, he's giving all the keys to the new secretary of state. And specifically, he gives him the key to the king's palace. And what Hezekiah is telling his new secretary of state is that you... You, yes, you're the last line of defense to my kingdom, but more than that, you have access to step into my palace whenever you see it necessary. And so when Jesus is here and he's talking to this church who feels like they have no power whatsoever, Jesus says, listen, 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 no one can shut the door on my kingdom power that I have opened up and made available to you. You have access to everything that is available in me and my presence. And so now our weakness is not a liability to conquering the way Jesus has invited us to, but it becomes an opportunity to showcase God's power rather than our power. And this is radically revolutionary when it comes to understanding conquering in the world. So let me ask you this morning, where do you feel weak? I had someone come up to me this morning and they said, Gabe, these last couple sermons have been heavy hitters. Just give me a hug this morning in this sermon. And, you know, listen, you know, you know we're going to preach the text as it is and navigate it. But actually, as an encouragement to us, there is something that meets all of us in the midst of our brokenness this morning. In the places where we feel weak. Maybe you feel disempowered at work because you're standing up for every person's human dignity and holding fast to Christ's values in that workspace. Maybe you feel like you have no power, you're powerless in a particular relationship that's beginning to fall apart. Maybe you feel like you've been holding on to Jesus' sex ethic and it's limited your prospects in dating. Maybe you feel like your finances are more fragile because not because you've leaned into an overindulgent lifestyle, but you've leaned into a great extension of your generosity. And I know for some of you, you just walked in this door and you felt like you barely made it here. You're barely making it in life. You feel like you're worn out, you're tired, you're worn thin exhausted, and you may be even hearing and you thought, okay, Gabe's talking about conquering. That's for somebody else or maybe for me later in life because right now, I don't feel like I've got the energy for this. Like, I'm just trying to make it. The strong ones can conquer. And what Jesus is saying this morning is that the weak ones do because it's not your power and my power that furthers the mission of Jesus. It's in our weakness that his strength is on display. And so maybe some of you, 
You need to hear the words of the Lord Jesus that he spoke to the Apostle Paul when he was wrestling with his own weakness, what he called a thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, where he says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. This irony that goes throughout the pages of Scripture, when God does some of the most astounding work in the world, it's because of his power and because we feel empty. Do you believe that that's true for you? And if you doubt, let me give you a more proximate example on how God has done that through his church. If you doubt, look at the black church and how it has been a catalyst for good within history. The black church that has been ostracized broadly by culture and even by white Christian brothers and sisters was a catalyst for good with not only the black community but in culture writ large. Pastor and Dr. Charlie Dates of Progressive Baptist Church in Chicago wrote a brilliant article in Christianity Today not too long ago highlighting how the black church, although it was ostracized from cultural power and political power, holding on to the formation of nonviolent resistance and the justice of God and the hope of what God will do through his people both now and in eternity became a prolific and profound witness against the injustice in our nation. And a faithful witness at that. Where do you feel weak? Where do you feel like you have nothing to give? And I got to be honest with you. Like this week was tough for me. <laughs> I've been like, you know how you, you, you're, you're in your life and you feel like there's the deadline. And you like to get things done here. And I'm like, you know, like a second late. <laughs> so you always feel like you're just, I mean, the scripture reading is a great example. Anybody else? Can I get a witness? Like, you're like, yay, big faux pas, messed it up. I feel like that's been my week. And I feel like, frankly, it's really hard for me to believe that my weakness, that your weakness, that our weakness as a little church, really in the grand scheme of what God is doing and what the evil one is doing this world over is the avenue for God's greatest work. That your weakness, that my weakness, it's not a liability. It's an opportunity for God to work. And he is working. And when we get this, listen, this is so important. When we really rest in this surprise, and sometimes it's not a surprise up here. It's a surprise that we can actually believe it down here. When we really get this, when we understand that our worth isn't defined by our strength, this little church of little power, Jesus says, I'm going to show the world that I've loved you, that I've been for you, right, in our text. When we understand that our worth isn't defined by how strong we are, but by whose we are. And we understand that we have this unbelievable access to God's power because he's opened up the door to his people and to his kingdom. It changes the way we go about conquering. It changes our battle stance such that we never fight against people. Let's check this out. Look with me here at verse 9. Verse 9. Behold, Jesus says, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, 
Jesus, when he invites us to conquer, he gives us a particular battle stance. And here it is. It's always fight for people, not against them. Always fight for people, not against them. You see, in the context here in Philadelphia, it's similar to what we saw in Smyrna. You actually may, if you want to jump back up there to chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, you'll see some similar language. And this is what was happening. There were some ethnically Jewish leaders who were seeking to persecute those who professed Jesus as the Messiah, which were both ethnically Jewish and Gentile. And what they were seeking to do is they had such scandal that God, would, that some people would say that Jesus was the Messiah and that God would actually allow his Messiah to be crucified. This is an unbelievable scandal that the Apostle Paul consistently battles throughout the book of Acts when he goes into the synagogues. That this is what God would do with his anointed one. And that you have both Jews and Gentiles who are saying Jesus is the Messiah. He's not only the, the, the son of God, this royal king that's to come. He is the God. And he died for our sins and he rose again. And this kingdom isn't this political force that's going to drown out the Roman Empire today. It's something bigger that's going to change the world and history writ large. And so these particular Jewish leaders, in the same way they were in opposition to Jesus or in opposition to the church, and they're seeking to reveal the church as an unauthorized sect within the Roman Empire, inviting persecution. And Jesus uses some pretty strong language here. He calls this group a synagogue of Satan, Satan. Satan means accuser, you see. They're accusing the church. And they are finding themselves anti-Christ against the purposes of Jesus. Now, in no way, shape, or form, I always need to say this because this often gets manipulated. In no way, shape, or form is this anti-Semitic talk. Jesus is a Jew. The apostle John is Jewish. There are many Jewish people who are in the church. This is one particular sect of Jewish people who are pursuing and seeking to persecute Christians and murder them. Because of the cause of Christ. And no way, shape, or form does this support anti-Semitic behavior. It is a rebuke of anti-Christ behavior, to be very clear. So what's going on here? Well, Jesus is once again going back to the prophet Isaiah. And he's quoting Isaiah 45, 14. In this particular passage, God makes a promise to Israel that their enemies that are in opposition to them, the Gentiles, will actually come and worship alongside of them the one true God. And here's what's so fascinating. That's happened. When I look around this room, a good chunk of you are not Jewish. <laughs> we worship the same God. We worship Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, such that when we find union with him, we are grafted in with the purposes of God are now a part of the people of God. And so God has brought reconciliation with Jew and Gentile with our union and our one Lord, our one Savior, and our one baptism as the Apostle Paul lays out in Ephesians chapter 4. This has happened. Now there's also an irony here. Because he's quoting this, Jesus is quoting this to a church that has both Jewish and Gentile folks in it. But now the Jewish religious leaders are the ones in opposition. Because they refuse the true and only Messiah Jesus. 
And what he's saying, the reason he's bringing this out, this is really important, is he's saying, listen, listen, I have one stance for you. Don't be against these people. Be for them. Because one day they're going to worship right, right along next to you. Right here, Jesus is giving them a unique insight that those that are around them, that are opposing them, one day every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is in true, indeed, the Lord, the true and holy one. So don't be against them. Or as the Apostle Paul brilliantly says, our battle is not against flesh and blood. That's not us. That's not what we're called to. That's not our purpose. How we conquer is through weakness, not by force. And our stance is to be for people, not against them. We're called to have compassion. That doesn't mean we have to have agreement. But we are for those that often will find themselves in opposition to Jesus. So let me ask you, how many of our interactions with people reveal a desire that enemies become family? Do you usually in conversations around faith find yourself pursuing a defensive posture right out the gate? When's the last time you sought to understand before you engaged in healthy debate and defense? When's the last time you prayed for those who have abused you, have hurt you, that they too might become a part of the family of God? What's your overall posture to your political enemies, your theological enemies, your workplace enemies? How many of our interactions reveal a desire that enemies become family? And this is really important because our world is changing. For the past 30 years, roughly, the question by many who are skeptical of the church and Jesus has been, is Christianity true? At worst, we've been called naive because we believe in things like miracles or the resurrection. But now there's a shift to the tide and a broader question that's being raised of the Christian faith and Jesus himself. And it's this, no longer is the question, is Christianity true? Now the question often is raised is, is Christianity good? Or is Jesus and his purposes bigoted and misogynistic? This has become the broader tide, pushing against the purposes of Jesus, saying, how could anything, I don't care whether it's true, but is it even good? And I got to be honest with you, when the church is often viewed as dangerous, the church hasn't had a great response. So many of us have not then going to see, have not seen that our stance is not to be against people but for people. Instead, we have chosen to be against people and to talk about people with such vitriol that the roads of any sort of reconciliation seem to be so far aflung. You know, it's been fascinating. If you want to think of a, a case study in some way, shape, or form, it's been fascinating to watch this whole thing unfurl with the story of Kanye West, you know? My goodness, I've wasted a lot of time this last week. Um, and here's why Kanye West, he is one of, he was like, when his first album, College Dropout, came out, it was fresh for me when I was a freshman in college. So some of you are like, wait, 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 okay, let me see how old he is. Um, it's un unimportant. But the, the reality is I've been following his music for quite a while. 
And it seems like his spiritual journey has been going on for quite a while. I mean, there are hints of this even in that very first album. But the fact that he went from one track entitled I Am God on his album entitled Jesus, intentionally meant to sound like Jesus, to now creating an album called Jesus is King with the title track Follow God, there's something going on. Like, this is pretty astounding <laughs> in terms of how artists, artists, often we find our identity wrapped up in our work. So in many ways, we're really getting an, an insight into what's going on into Kanye West. And listen, like I said, I've spent a ton of time reading articles around this and his particular journey and spiritual journey. And here's what I've just been surprised by. Christians of all stripes have really come with skepticism and ridicule. Well, no, 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 I get that Kanye says Jesus is king, but he's not really Christian enough, which they usually mean he's not mature enough, he's not conservative enough, he's not progressive enough, he's not woke enough, he's not fill in the blank. It's like the church loves to keep her enemies her enemies. And when Jesus starts bringing people together, he pulls a tax collector and a zealot. <laughs> it doesn't play nice. And God's people don't always look the same. And that's okay. That's beautiful. We're on different journeys, but we're all following the same Lord. You see, God's working. And for his people, for you and I, in this journey of conquering, this stance is always to be for people, not against them hoping that they one day bow the knee to Jesus and join us in worship of the one true Lord. And with that stance, there's only one secret. There's only one way to actually go about this conquering. It's a secret, but it's not really a secret. It's a secret because we often don't lean into it. Here's the secret. Jesus, or dying with Jesus, is always how we overcome. Dying with Jesus is always how we overcome. In each of these points, you'll notice there's this word always that kind of shows up. I think one of the greatest areas where the church misses the mark is when we start making these little exceptions. It's like, no, 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 no. I get that, like, that's been the case all the way up throughout church history. You know, but, but this is an exception. <laughs> and when we start stepping into these really bizarre exceptions or we start making exceptions usually for ourselves so that we can do what we want through post hoc justification, it leads to a destruction not only in our generation, but in the generations that follow. When the children that come out of this generation look at the one before and say, what were you thinking? Look with me at verse 8. Look with me at verse 8. Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Jump down to verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. You see, the church in Philadelphia, although it had little power, it was holding fast to God's word. It was holding fast to this word about patient endurance. They were holding on. What were they holding on to? At the center of it, they're holding on to the gospel. 
that God's plan and purpose for Jesus was that God would come, he would live, he would suffer, and then he would die, and three days later rise again for our redemption, and then simultaneously call us to pick up our cross and follow him. In other words, Jesus, holding fast to Jesus, is always holding fast to his cross. And the cross has always been the pathway to a crown. The Christian is called to choose death and to so die to the systems, the values, and the purposes of the surrounding world for our enemies and so see our weakness become the avenue of God's conquering in the midst of brokenness. Now, some of you may be thinking, okay, but it says they're gonna, that Jesus is going to keep them from this hour of trial. And what we can so easily do in our worship of comfort is to think that somehow Jesus is saying, when it gets really tough, guys, I'm going to take you out. But nowhere do we see that. Jesus went to the cross until he breathed his last. Smyrna is called to suffer unto death. Often this language of keep is God's promise to be in it with us and to strengthen us through it rather than to take us out of it. Returning to Richard Bauckham, he brilliantly says this to bring some clarity. If we must translate the call to conquer into literal terms, we could say that it requires every Christian already to accept the martyrdom that faithful witness may incur. The church has always had a secret weapon in conquering, and it's always been the cross. And whenever the church has missed it, it's because we picked up some other tool. You can't plaster a cross on a sword and somehow baptize violence and think we're carrying out God's mission. We see that in the Crusades. The Christians at that era began to adopt the tools of Islam, warfare and conquering in the physical sense to fight Islam, and it left carnage for generations and left a mark on history of shame. The religious right also sought to pursue political dominance in the same way that others were pursuing political dominance in order to fight socialism and liberalism. And yet all the studies are revealing that the next generation that followed no longer finds identity with the Christian faith because they associate it with a political party. The next generation sees the errors of our way of the previous generation. And that's not me to communicate arrogance, but we all have blind spots. Every generation has particular blind spots. And whenever we try to pick up the tools of the world to accomplish the means of God, destruction ensues. We feel so justified. We're going towards God's goal, but you're using the world's weapons. And every time we do that, we lose our enemies and frankly, we lose ourselves. We're invited down the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. And it's there that we find a better version of ourselves, a bigger family, and a more beautiful city. So let me ask us this morning, where do we need to hold tighter to the cross? What weapons of the world have you been seeking to put into your artillery to accomplish God's purposes? They've been designed for one purpose. 
Now, I want to be very clear. This is one of the beauties of the book of Revelation is that at the end, Jesus will conquer. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. But the other hard reality, though, is that it's a very long road. You often feel absurd because it seems like you're swimming in water that makes no sense. It'll often bring ridicule, but we're called to continue. And then if we do so, we see here in our passage, we're invited to now be a pillar. Even though we feel utterly weak, we're invited to be this strong pillar in the work that God is doing in renewing his world. But to be clear, his work must be indeed done his way, not just for his ends. And so we walk, we die just like him. It doesn't mean we have to be in agreement with enemies, but we come with compassion. But we still die, and so allow our weakness to be the avenue in which God's strength is portrayed. Can you imagine, I just want you to just take a moment, close your eyes, and imagine how the history of the world would be different if that is the weapon that the church had used in this conquering endeavor throughout history. If weakness was an opportunity, not a liability, if we chose to always, always fight for people rather than against people, and we chose to die with Jesus as the avenue of our overcoming. So may we fight and may we conquer in the way that Jesus has called us to, through our weakness, for our enemies, through our own death. May it be so. Amen. Amen.